Hello, this is Will Beeman from the Money on the Left Editorial Collective. I wanted to introduce what you're about to hear, which is the audio from a long interview with my colleague Scott Ferguson, conducted by C. Derek Varn over at the Varn Vlog on YouTube. And you're damn right I had to write all of this down. C. Derek Varn has had a few of us on Varn Vlog, as well as debated my colleague Max Seho through Zero Books. And what you're about to hear is an interview with Scott Ferguson about some of the arguments in his book, Declarations of Dependence, Money, Aesthetics, and the Politics of Care. As I think many listeners probably know, social media and Twitter in particular is a place where we work out a lot of ideas with both fellow travelers, a wider community of supporters, and people who disagree with money on the left as well. Twitter can be a very reactive place, and disagreements can sometimes feel like they're charged with inside-outside factional identifications. That's certainly a big part of how left Twitter developed in opposition to neoliberal op-ed columnists and institutions and so on. Yet however angry and reactive these encounters might be, they're mediated not only by the platform, but by the fact that there's enough of a scaffolding of understanding to have an argument and be angry in the first place. And at the same time, these public conversations, dialogues, and conflicts furnish and mediate a space of reflection for participants and onlookers alike. It can be great to go offline, all things in moderation, but sometimes you want to go offline from offline and think about things that you can't work out just by yourself or with your neighbor. The Varn Vlog is an interesting show in this respect because C. Derek Varn is a Marxist who, by his own admission, sees hidden conflict everywhere. But the form of the show suspends that conflict, while maybe holding it in the background, not getting rid of it. But nevertheless, it's a dialogue. And it's one that's legible from the point of view of familiar debate show forums. But it's very much not that either. The conversation you're about to hear is constructive. Scott Ferguson's book is an intervention in the Marxist critical theory tradition in which he was trained, and the reception of his arguments and claims are necessarily going to be mediated by politics. Rather than reduce that mediation to a debate bro form, the following interview opens it up more ambiguously as a collaboration to tease out what the hell Scott is saying for listeners to think about and wrestle with. We're very appreciative of C. Derek Varn for platforming the work that we do, and you can watch Varn Vlog on YouTube or listen to it in podcast form. You can support VarnVlog at patreon.com slash VarnVlog. And if you want to support our work, you can do so at patreon.com slash MOL superstructure. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy this interview. We feel that they have something out that the majority of the people don't know about. They will learn some half-blooding, half-blooding, you be half-blooding. Now I'll show you what it is. Now I'll show you what it is. Pent up feelings that, that may result from decades of repression and people who've had members of their family killed by that regime. A lot of killers. You get a lot of killers. Why do you think our country's so innocent? But I won't attack it because someone fixed me up. I don't let anybody use me to fight their battles.
Hello, I'm here with uh, Professor Scott Ferguson of, let's see, where are you teaching these days, Scott? I'm at the University of South Florida. At the University of South Florida and the author of Declarations of Dependence, um, which is probably the first book I encountered, which was a critical theory approach to modern monetary theory and some of the political implications of it. Um, I wanted to ask you, why did you decide to engage in what is traditionally seen as an economic uh, framework as a critical theoretical framework? Well, thanks for having me. Um, that's actually a really good question. And to be honest, it's, I experienced it in, in a backwards way to the way you framed it. So, mm. so I was, I have long been interested in the critical theory tradition, which as most people know, is, you know, one of the many, many uh, iterations, articulations of Marxism and Marxism, Marxist critical theory poses a lot of critical questions about history, class politics, culture, aesthetics, and we can kind of get into kind of reviewing what, what critical theory is all up to. And it, it, it poses those questions in particular ways. It has particular habits um, and particular assumptions that I had fully internalized. Uh, um, even if I think I probably had, I kind of felt their tensions and their limits and their blind spots, even as I was inhabiting them. And when I was trying to research, uh, you know, heterodox political economy in, you know, 2010, 2011, 2012, uh, and discovering the post-Keynesian tradition and modern monetary theory and institutional economics, I sort of realized that there were, there were other assumptions and other ways of posing some of these fundamental questions in critical theory um, in different ways, in ways that could be more capacious. So I didn't, I wasn't like an MMT person who then thought, oh, we should, we should do some critical theory with this stuff. My position was I was a critical theorist and what what MMT was saying, and often what MMT, what I was reading in MMT, not as a positivist or literalist discourse, but but kind of in its deeper, sometimes half or unconscious implications, I felt that, wow, this can really unsettle and blow open the critical theory tradition in really what, what, what for me were exciting ways, but then when I was when I started to try to talk to friends of mine who were variously committed to Marxist critical theory, some of them got excited, some of them got got afraid of me, uh, and some of them pushed back and and really really wouldn't wouldn't truck with uh, where I was trying to go. I mean, it's interesting because I think about the history of critical theory, which it is at once it is comes out of Marxism, um, uh, the Horkheimer-Adorno relationship of critical theory, though, has always this plausible deniability of a break or a continuity with Marxism. And it kind of depends on the scholar or even yeah. what time you're reading Horkheimer or Adorno. Yeah. Um, 
So which which critical theorist did you find most useful to reevaluate with this lens you were getting from MMT? I have to say that I I have not focused on one or another. Okay. Um, you know, I what I would say is that I I'm certainly indebted to what's often you know written big C big T critical theory, and that's the Frankfurt School. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are you know traditionally we think of people like Max Horkheimer and and Theodore Adorno, um, and and there are others, and then there are the fellow travelers, people like Walter Benjamin and Siegfried Krakauer. Um, those those uh, thinkers are actually really important in film studies, which is my my primary discipline. Uh, so. But but that's like big C, big T critical theory. I, I think if you are a practicing humanities student or scholar, you know, since, uh, I don't know, the 60s or 70s, you typically, most people have a kind of big tent approach to critical theory. So the black radical tradition counts, mm-hmm. the feminist and queer theory counts, post-colonial and decolonial theory counts. Um, abolitionism counts, the list goes on and on. So, you know, structuralism and post-structuralism, cultural studies coming out of the Birmingham School in the UK, um, you know, various kind of critical new media theories. So I guess I I was really thinking in broad terms about (laughs) a lot of the assumptions that all of these schools variously share. and thinking that while the, to use Marxist language, the form of value, uh, the way that MMT opens up the question of the form of value in this different way, uh, really, really challenges a lot of the kind of interlocking parts of mm. these critical theory traditions that I still nevertheless feel that I'm a part of and want to you know, dialogue with and, um, you know, to my mind, help make make better. So one of the interesting things about um, modern monetary theory's recent, uh, say, uh, academic history is it does come out of heterodox economics. There's there's the chartalist and neo-chartalist element. There's also the let's say heterodox Keynesian or uh, the heterodox response to the new Keynesians, depending on how you, you know, from Minsky forward. And then there's a separate strand, um, which is like Christine Dazein and the uh, constitutional studies, people who look at kind of the legal history of law and money. Yeah. And they would don't call themselves MMT. Right. Yeah. Um, and then inside of there, there's institutional economics and Veblen. I mean, there's a lot that there's a lot that's there's a lot that's kind of packed into what what gets called MMT that isn't always um, acknowledged. So, um, where do you situate uh, what? Well, we've already kind of talked about this. You've situated yourself in critical theory, but your recent book declarations of dependence kind of uh goes through a couple of problematics in different time periods and one you focus on is shifts in the thinking around um money in let's say uh 
the early modern Catholic church and European discourse. Mm. Uh, so like the shift from a kind of um, Augustinian mode to a Franciscan mode and the Franciscan particular emphasis on poverty um, leading to a, uh, a kind of negative discourse that you think actually constructs an austerity mode of what would become capitalism, right? Yeah, we'll um, become like a, an early modern liberal enlightenment uh, construction of monetary mediation. Um, how important do you think that is? Uh, I think it's, <clears throat> I think it's incredibly important, but actually I'd like to step back a second okay. and maybe spell out what, at least for me is important about critical theory. And then what, I mean, I've been talking around this, but I want to put more meat on the bone. So, you know, critical theory traditionally starts with a distinction between between itself critical theory and what gets called traditional theory or conventional theory mm -hmm. and you know basically this is this is a, a revival of you know marx and the thesis on feuerbach right the philosophers have hitherto only interpreted the world in various ways the point is to change it the way that that Horkheimer will, you know, reanimate this um, in an essay called, I think it's called Critical Theory and, or no, Critical and Traditional Theory, is that traditional theory is really, is a descriptive theory. It's a normative theory. It's a theory that, that naturalizes the status quo um, and, and is essentially a, um, a kind of instrumentalist theory that naturalizes the status quo, including the you know the the relations of production and and and, and class asymmetry, in order to then um, in order to then exploit that that system that model in order to uh, perpetuate the injustices of that system, right? Um, but to do it in the name of reason and enlightenment or utility or any number of kind of bourgeois um, uh, <laughs> kind of slippery universals that are that are really excuses. So right, critical theory is interested in critiquing, right? Um, and that word critique, as critical theorists often point out, is related in its root to the to the um, root word for crisis, right? So where traditional theorists see more or less uh, a world that is stable enough, the critical theorist sees crises, sees conflicts, sees tensions, sees antinomies, sees disagreements, um, paradoxes, et cetera, et cetera. And those contradictions, those crises, those paradoxes are a sign that not everything is okay, <laughs> that injustice prevails, and that uh, the dominant modes of making sense of the world, of social relations, of ecological relations, um, actually don't hold, uh, and they are covering up and naturalizing systemic injustice. So that's, I think, I think step one. So critical theory looks for the crises and and wants to acknowledge the crises in order to change the world, in order to transform the world. The second thing is that the critical theorists, 
And this is the just so story that they themselves tell, especially Georg Lukacs, who kind of opens the door for a lot of these critical theorists, even if he's not an official member of the Frankfurt School. Um, they're looking at what they see as vulgar materialist tendencies in the Second International uh, and saying to themselves, well, I mean, first of all, most of them had training in European aesthetics and German aesthetics in particular, mm -hmm. and, and were variously experts at, you know, for, for Lukacs, he was a, a literature professor, you know, Adorno was a musicologist, um, you know, Benjamin famously is like a kind of proto-multimedia theorist who never got a job uh, or never got a, a, a you know, a, a, scholarship, a scholarly job. And, you know, they, although, of course, they still kind of recognize what they feel the, the importance of the base superstructure distinction is, they'll still use that language, but they, they I think, radically volatize it and, and get rid of any, they, they push back on any kind of like unidirectional causality and they will, you know, they'll, they'll insist that essentially aesthetics and culture and politics and everything that's sort of banished in certain vulgar, supposedly vulgar Marxist discourses um, to mere superstructure, mere fluff, uh, mere add-on, mere idealism, is actually constitutive, is actually meaningful, but not, not self-identically, right? Not on its, necessarily on its own terms, right? But is part of the historical process and is part of conflict, is part of the crisis. And also is complicated enough that there are sort of, um, for these various theorists, there are things to, there are impulses to affirm, various impulses to affirm in aesthetics and culture. So they, they really dedicate themselves to thinking about aesthetics and culture with this in mind. So, you know, I'm on board for most of that stuff. Uh, you know, that was my training. I think, you know, part of critical theory, another part of critical theory that's very important to me is uh, expressed by Adorno really well, that, that critical theory, um, aims to lend a voice to suffering and, and not to lend a voice to suffering that has been repressed, but also to, you know, in their kind of quasi-Messianic Judaic language to redeem it, right? To, to honor it to, and to redeem it by not only letting it resonate, but then changing the world to, um, to, uh, <laughs> to make things better, right? To make things whole again, or for the first time. Um, and then, so with these, with these kind of impulses and analyses in mind, critical theorists, especially the, the, the big C, big T ones, um, and, and, you know, those who are most, most faithful to that tradition, you know, I'm thinking about people like Frederick Jameson and, um, maybe David Harvey, um, T.J. Clark, you know, uh, across humanities disciplines in the late 20th and, and early 21st centuries, they they too are going to be thinking a whole lot about right the value form, the form of value, and um, you know another way of putting this is money, money as mediator, and money specifically as an abstract mediator, 
an abstract organizer of social relations, of relations of production, um, in, and including aesthetics and aesthetic production and, and cultural forms. And I would say that most critical theorists, although they don't always put it this way, I think it's I think it's fair and persuasive to to claim that that critical theory in this mainline tradition has been preoccupied with the problem of money as a broader problem of abstraction, which is a pro also a problem of sensuous belonging and and questions of justice and history. So with this in mind and me, you know, thinking this, inhabiting this, teaching this for years and years, when I got to modern monetary theory, you know, I was not necessarily immediately taken by, you know, positivist or literalist claims like the, the sovereign currency issue or can't, you know, I mean, I, I, to me, I was reading sort of through and around those, those articulations. And I was seeing, I was seeing an understanding of money qua abstraction that I thought, wait a minute, this is, this is saying that money qua abstraction and abstraction are like truly contestable and truly reshapable. Not that it's a Pollyanna, yay, we can fix it without conflict, <laughs> but that but that there is, and I, you know, kind of started to reckon with the fact that the Marxist tradition and the critical theory Marxist tradition really begins from a place of, uh, begins from an assumption that money is abstract value, it's abstract exchange value, and that, that expresses a fundamental underlying alienation and once I started to move that peg out of the system <laughs> and start slotting in, you know, kind of an open, an openness to, to MMT and what, what a non-alienating, like a non-necessarily alienating, a non-lapsarian theory of money could do, every, everything started to, to kind of shift for me in a big and exciting way. So we were talking before we started recording about your views on abstraction um, and how you wanted to kind of move abstraction away from both the analytic uh, tendency to see abstraction as the removal of qualia or the removal of some, you know, sensuous uh, something other than you know, abstraction is usually seen as reducing something to its form or its quanta, depending. Um, and then in the uh, kind of continental Marxist perspective, abstraction is seen as the, the, the fetish character that hides alienation and it hides uh, different kinds of uh, arguably usually conflicting relationships. Um, exactly. And then so in that way, to use Adorno's language, it is... <sighs> It's the it's the it's the dialectic of enlightenment. It's identity thinking as such. It's it's reason as identity thinking, which for Adorno and Horkheimer, right? That identity identity can't hold, right? It can it can try to destroy, it can try to order, it can try to put everything in a box, but but the dialectical character 
of reality or of history um, or of epistemology or all of it is self-undermining. And, and I don't agree with that. Yeah. So say, like, <laughs> you fundamentally reject that, right? Yes, I do. I do. Um, uh, uh, yeah. And, and as a, a, a dirty Marxist, um, uh, I am like, okay. <laughs> like, um, that's my initial response is always like, okay, so what do we mean by abstraction here then? Yeah. So I admittedly have a really idiosyncratic, arguably just novel understanding of abstraction that is, I will admit is just not, I mean, it, it's still related to the word abstraction. I, I stand by like, I stand by the transvaluation and the redefinition, mm -hmm. <laughs> but like rather than using another word, for example, but, but I think it, what I'm up to with theorizing abstraction is really unsettling in relationship to the way we usually think about it. So we've, we've discussed a variety of ways, reduction, subtraction, uh, quantification, ident identi you know, flattening identities, all of this. Um, and I guess, so what I say, what I, what I offer is that most modern, the dominant modern Western metaphysics um, tends to be predicated, there's different ways I put this, uh, in, it tends to be predicated on an original individuality. All there are are individuals, and those individuals could be persons, they could be families, they could be firms, they could be, I don't know, a church, they could be, they could be a relationship, but all there are are, are primary particulars or primary individuals, and then relations, obligations, mediations, institutions, um, and certainly money are are always thought to be kind of super added. They're like they're 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 imposed or they're or they're a, a, a product of convergence. Right, willful convergence, either non-willful willful imposition or willful convergence. Okay. And so if you start from a primary individuality, then and, and any relationality or mediation or abstraction, which I would I'll just define as, as mediation at a distance, or I have different ways of putting it, um, remote coordination. Um, is going to read as, as a potential threat and a potential fall. Um, and what I see is whether it's in Marx and Marxism and critical theory or in the liberal tradition or in fascist <laughs> traditions, this, this is usually taken for granted. It's the fundamental problem. How do you, how do you, how do you make sense of the world and argue for and struggle for the, the, the right kind of society or the right kind of political order, given the originary individualism of everything? And yeah, so I reject this and I want to say no institutions, organizations, 
obligations, <laughs> credits, and debts, none of it is like necessary in their particular historical instantiations, right? Like the, nothing is necessary about any order. But what I would say is what is necessary is mediation as such. It's not, it's not super added to individuals. It's always primary, I would say. And you only get individuation as a function of these kind of heterogeneous nested scales. And so what I would say is it's important to be critically theorizing at these nested scales without being afraid that you're going to be flattening or homogenizing or, uh, or taking away from individuality. Because I think I would say that this is a kind of uh, an illusion of these modern Western metaphysics. I would say that this is a kind of a fantasy of, of um, hemorrhaging or disintegration when we get wrapped up in the ways that, you know, in Marxist language, the value form homogenizes, makes exchangeable, you know, as abstract labor time, socially necessary labor time. And then we, we have this, this kind of drama of abstract socially necessary labor time being evacuated from the worker through the wage form. And I'm not pro wage form. I'm not pro 19th century industrial capitalism any, any more than I'm pro contemporary shit show fascist neoliberalism. But I don't, what I would argue is that the premises from which we critique these systems and we try to imagine and build and fight for new ones should not be proceeding from the, this originary individuality. And this is actually what brings us to the Franciscans. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so one thing I could say is, uh, as a, a, a student at one point in my life of like um, ancient philosophy, the individual uh, ethnos polis uh, class stuff in that is very different than anything we see in modern thought. But um, in an almost Nietzschean sense, uh, to throw out a term, I do sort of see the focus on the individual uh, start to come up in those um, di dialectical dialogues uh, of Socrates, right? And that's what's focused on and picked up, particularly, I think, in the time period you're talking about. So uh, there's a lot of humanists, uh, and by here I don't, I don't mean like the ideological humanists, I mean there's people in the humanities, um, who would talk about like the, the ideological individuation of, say, late medieval Christianity um, changing the nature of literature and Dante where we're talking about individuals than in um, say the Iliad and the Odyssey, where we're dealing with typologies of people really, except for mm -hmm. the heroes. Um, so I can kind of see what you're talking about, but I was very interested in the specific shift that you saw in the framing of poverty and monastic poverty from the, uh, Augustinian, uh, Benedictine, whatever, um, to the Franciscan. Not because I, I don't know if I agree with it, but th there are some things I, I have noticed in reading other, you know, because I, I am probably one of those positivistic people that you're talking about as a very literal reading of history. But um, <laughs> uh, 
when I was reading in the origins of capitalism and I was, you know, getting all that Max Weber stuff were taught out of my head. Um, I did notice that the first things that met the definition of capital that we, that you would call like proto capital and, and, and Marxism in quotation marks is actually in certain monastic relationships in like the 11th and 12th century. And, uh, Brundel, um, the oh. uh, French theoretician of the long durée, talks about yeah. this. Um, yeah. And so that just kind of corresponded with this this like ideological story that you told in your Declarations of Independence. So let's go into that. What what did the Franciscans accidentally do, and how did they do it? Oh boy. Okay. So so an important contrast for me is, well, let me just say this, you know, right, we, we trace history, at least for me, like, I'm not looking, I'm not digging for gold when I do history, history, I'm enough of a Nietzschean, to use the term again, to realize that, you know, history is for, for life, right, and it's like, well, what can you do with history, right, so to a certain extent, history is always myth-making, and I, I'll own that, right? Which isn't to say that, like, I don't care about evidence. Of course, I care about evidence. I'm not just making shit up. But, but, um, right? So I don't claim to have the story or, like, this is where capitalism started. But there, I think what, what I've traced and uncovered is it's actually just a different, it's a different frame and a different analysis of a story that kind of gets told all the time in a variety of places about where Western modernity came from. And I'm not the first person to tell the story. I'm just the first person to tell it in this particular way. Um, so first of all, th so to come back to, to the main contrast that I was interested in the book, which is um, the contrast between what Thomas Aquinas is up to mm -hmm. and versus what the Franciscans are up to. And they're sort of, you know, the the Thomists and the the Franciscans are you know Tom Saint Thomas is a a, a Dominican, mm -hmm. uh, and right he belongs to the Dominican order, and uh, Saint Francis, you know, founds the the Franciscan order, and um, they both they both are ascetic traditions that that practice poverty, right? So just to be clear. I'm, even though I have, I would say, a kind of historical interest in affirming certain kinds of impulses in, in those Thomists, not modern Thomists. I can't truck with modern Thomists, but those Thomists. Um, it's not because they were, they rejected the life of poverty. Um, they, they, they too practiced this. They were less radical than the Franciscans. Um, the Franciscans, I mean, St. Francis's right, origins are come from a repudiation of his, his paternal wealth. You know, he was like, arguably like the, the, the son of like a successful merchant and he repudiated his, his wealth and, um, not only you know, started this order based on radical poverty, um, but also forbid his followers from touching money. And then there's all these stories that go along with, with Francis about, you know, 
uh, throwing money into like donkey dung and like, you know, money is the most disgusting thing ever. And how can you, right. And this is a very particular reading of money as, as just private acquisitive, um, um, you know, all about private property and personal power, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what actually interests me more than that is not even, you know, okay. I'll say, Thomas Aquinas has interesting things to say about, you know, just prices, you know, and things like that. And he, 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 there's a, there's space in his writing for, I mean, it's actually like really helpful for right now. Right. Because I think Thomas Aquinas would be like, yeah, you know, we should, <laughs> we should be, um, well, he wouldn't say fighting or struggling, but we can translate that. Right? We should be fighting and struggling to, to make these, you know, multinational corporations that are price gouging, not fucking do that anymore. Right. So like, yes, there's a money story, but for me, what I'm most interested in is kind of the underlying theology and metaphysics that each one is kind of picking, each one is um, propagating and money is only like part of that story. Um, even if it's conspicuous, especially with, with uh, the Franciscans. So it's the Franciscans who who are the ones who start insisting that being, being only comes in individuated forms. And this is radically against what Thomas Aquinas um, was, was propagating, which was basically he saw what, you know, he saw the Christian God as essentially um, this kind of, overarching mediating whole that you know there was no escape right you 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 were one was interdependently part of this whole right and of course one can critique thomas aquinas and critique the the medieval catholic church i have no i'm not, I'm not an apologist for any of it but i i'm interested in just as an origin story the contrast between well one guy who's like yeah like Medi abstract mediation matters. And then the other, the other folks who are like, no, that's super added. That's essentially bullshit. All there are individuals. They argued that God was a separate individual, just a super all powerful individual, not just like the mediating relationships that we all heterogeneously share. And, and so their whole their whole theology their whole social practice even though they're known as kind of like the first proto marxists and social justice warriors and first like ecologists uh, what i worry about with the franciscans is that they introduce they introduce an understanding of the world that is that says only individuals are real only and individuals are primary and that anything above that um, is essentially, yeah, a secondary fall or some kind of alienation. And that's a big problem for me. Okay. So this is uh, where your lapsarian focus kind of comes in. Here, yeah. And right? for them, it was, it was straight up lapsarian. It was about a reading of Eden. It was about okay. a reading of Eden that said, you know, in in, in Eden, 
um, things were okay, and now we're we're fallen, and now we're all just individuals that are cut off from everybody else. So that's why that's why we have to group together to form solidarity and to um, you know minister to the poor. And you know I'm not I'm, we can minister to the poor. That's fine, <laughs> but I'd rather re I'd rather struggle to reimagine and reorganize the system that mediates the whole such that we don't have poor poor people in the first place. Hmm. So another focus of your book that I found interesting and uh, we're, you know, whenever we say the, the H name Heidegger, people get in hackles. Uh, yes. Rightly in some ways. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Oh, totally. But uh, I, as you were explaining your issues with abstraction, I actually was thinking about Heidegger's um, the long, torturous event <laughs> of reading, re uh, being in time in when time. I was in graduate school. Um, but Heidegger's critique of of rationality, as opposed to say the Weberian or the Frankfurt School critique of instrumental rationality, Heidegger has a a a more all-encompassing critique of of reason, uh, of almost almost of reason as such, right? Um, Although I would say Adorno and Horkheimer do too, but do, well, yeah, yeah, and they hate him. Yeah, they, yeah, they, they hate Heidegger. Yeah. Well, it, it's it is it is you have to really understand the subtleties of the. Uh, critique of instrumental reason and its manifestation of dialectic of enlightenment to really get how different they are than Heidegger because superficially they look very close. Um, but to get more into that detail, you used, him, you used Heidegger in your book. and um, A little bit. Uh, can you talk about what about Heidegger's uh, issues with, say, enlightenment rationality and individuality did you did you find helpful to your project? So I do not find his critique of rationality or even his, you know, I think, I think he's a Franciscan just like, I mean, he, you know, he, he wrote a dissertation about Dun Scotus, who's a Franciscan. I, I, I don't, I don't see him getting out of the trap of that. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't, and I do think that he, he shares he shares a very common, I think, reductive view of rationality, even if, you know, I don't, I mean, I, again, I'm not like, I have no interest in defending, you know, enlightenment rationality. Uh, so what, what animates, what has, what has been meaningful to me about Heidegger, I think is, and the reason why I, I, you know, dared to cite Heidegger in my book is because it's, I, I have long been wrestling with trying to articulate a theory of interdependence that I, that I call care, mm -hmm. that Heidegger at least minimally helps me get some leverage <laughs> with. So, so primarily, so, right, so for Heidegger, care sorga is is this primary problem it's this primary question and it's the question 
it's the question of being, the question of the meaning of being for Dasein, right? For the human being, at least in, for, in his early work. So it's not positivist. It is, uh, it's an open question and it's a kind of burden and charge. It's like, it's not something you can escape. It's not something you can decide to take on or not. You can kind of like try to repress it or run from it. But um, one's interdependence and one's uh, burden, sense of being burdened by big problems of care is, is like crucial, a crucial non-positivist foundation for Heidegger. Now, what I would say is that he still frames this as like, you know, the, the existential self. And I also don't think that later Heidegger, that sort of his proto-post-structuralist, that's sort of decentering the self, gets out of this problem either. So what's, what was meaningful for me, and I don't think I'll ever write, I don't, I don't see myself coming back to this again and again um, in my writing, but I think most meaningful for me is thinking as baseline constitutive of human being, of eco-social being and relationality as a fundamental interdependence, a, a remote interdependence that's not just about me and who I choose to relate to, or, or me and who imposes their will on me, but, but everything and all institutions and the frigging cosmos. And so I think Heidegger kind of opens up that question. He just opens it up in, in a, a kind of poor, a bad way. Um, I'm, I think you're laughing probably at comments, but I'm going to ignore it. We're ignoring that. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm not reading them. Um, so, so for me, this kind of fundamental problem of dependence is what I argue, if that's where I argue any critique, any politics, any socialist project, uh, any aesthetic project should be starting. Okay. <laughs> so... Let's go into the definition. So, so you you found this this notion of care from Heidegger that that you think that he tries to deindividuate a little bit, or at least decenter the self. Particularly, this is picked up in the works of Derrida. Um, I think you know. I, I'm I'm as we're talking, Scott. I gotta admit, I'm going back to my 15 year ago like English grad school brain. Um, so I'm going like i haven't talked about derrida in, in any serious way in probably Fair. a decade i'm uh, happy to, i'm happy to define anything we say you know i don't we always start it start at the basic premises so let's uh let, let's uh take a little bit here so first of all um positivism is a very serious charge in German philosophy in the early 20th century, unless you are a logical positivist. Uh, yes, everybody the... hates them. Lenin yeah. doesn't like them. Adorno doesn't like them. Heidegger doesn't like them. Uh, Dilthey doesn't like them. But what is it? <laughs> so let's define positivism and then get into non-positivism. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think uh, I, I didn't come prepared to define positivism, but I guess we can try. So I think um, I think that there's a there's a positivism um, in a way 
holds a faith in the fidelity of direct description of the world and does so for so a direct description of the world that then can be logically understood and then the world can be you know built transformed to meet whatever rational ends are necessary right so you know uh you know this this in part was a socialist project as we know right the 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 in vienna right this the, the logical positivists were very um very much part of part of red vienna and and Right. And, you know, things to be proud of. Right. Um, yeah. Austro-Marxism basically split into two sub theoretical categories after the political wing of Austro-Marxism. I'll get killed by Nazis. And uh, I mean, just that's just a fact. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. Um, you basically have the logical positivists on one time and their mirror, dark or light, depending on your opinion, uh, anti-positivist uh, Frankfurt School. Um, at the same time. And, and the other thing is like positivism, you know, goes back to like August Comte and, and uh, Durkheim uh, was the conservative version, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know. So I'm not a positivist. I don't, I don't, I don't believe that um, denotative descriptions of the world are self-evident uh, and that can be, and can be kind of just rationally and logically um uh leveraged uh without conflict or detour or enigma or mystery um yeah yeah so i mean what's at stake here is basically uh for the listeners is can i make valid generalizations based off of basic basically empirical description without any conflict um, and just state it as an unquestioned, uncritical truth. Um, and in the logical form, the logical positivists, uh, they try to back that up a little bit more with like, if it is logically valid and it is empirically true, then we can say that it is true, unquestionably. Uh, um, and I'm much more of a Frankfurt schooler, you know, I'm I don't validity claims are not my my issue. My issue is injustice and 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 conflict and and suffering and and pleasure and community. So this brings us to uh, your more positive uh, political project or critical project. Um, you are you, you work primarily in film studies, right? Um, yeah, I mean that's my training. I teach in it, but I mean I'm also just yeah, I'm very promiscuous. But yeah, that, that's my home base. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, hum humanist again. Humanitarian is the wrong word. Um, so I mean, you probably are a dirty humanitarian, but that's that's a <laughs> that's actually a different claim. Um, so. Uh, in which ways, you know, you've done a lot, I've heard, I've heard a lot of your, um, your, uh, lectures on say the neoliberal blockbuster mm -hmm. and, um, and what that says are how, about how at least the popular conception is 
constituting what is community, what is money, etc. Um, yeah, what is mediation? What mm -hmm. what's real? What matters? Yeah. Um, let's let's go into that a little bit because I think that will probably seem where this stuff seems less obscure than when we're talking about Franciscans uh, in the 14th and 15th and 16th century. Okay. Um, um, so, not really the 14th and 15th century, but um, if I remember, I went to Catholic school for a little while and I should be better at this. Um, well, I mean, they, they stick around and they fracture and there's radical ones and then, you know, Against being proto-Protestants at some point. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there would be, there would have been no reform Christianity. There would have been no Luther and no Calvin if it hadn't been for Francis and Duns Scotus and William of Ockham. I mean, you know, the, Luther was a, you know, he had some critiques, but essentially he was like an Ockhamist. Mm. So to get more into the applications of this for popular culture now, um, what do you see that, uh, what okay? What did you mean by the neoliberal blockbuster? That that is a that's a phrase that's going to seem less out of the blue to normal leftist listeners, but probably still needs definition. Okay, so I will define it, but then I'm going to go back and okay, that's and, fine. And draw a through line from from like Florentine Renaissance to the to the neoliberal blockbuster. So the neoliberal blockbuster, as I define it, so. The term blockbuster actually comes from uh, World War II American military uh, like PR campaign, like war bonds drive. And it was like a bomb called the blockbuster. And like, and it was like on display buy a war bond to pay for this big bomb that's going to go blow up Hitler. And, and then that term just got picked up and it was used to like describe, um, um, hit plays and stuff like that. Um, and then it got used to, to talk about big budget spectaculars from classical Hollywood in like the fifties and sixties. And if you know anything about classical Hollywood post-World War II is that this is like a, uh, these, this is an era of decline. Uh, and, the the studio system is is hemorrhaging money they have to white flight and suburb suburbanization means that you know all the theaters are 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 in the urban core they're being evacuated and people are playing miniature golf and watching tv instead of going into the city to see movies and um they start, you know, this is the age of like 3D and all cinemascope and bells and all kinds of bells and whistles and you know uh stuff like that. And they, they will start changing their business model and they'll start making more and more of these like big budget spectaculars. And then one will hit like sound of music. And then they go, the, the, the studio system goes nuts and then they make a bunch more and then they flop. So this model is like this failed model of these big budget blockbuster spectaculars until the late 70s. And it's in the late 70s. Okay, well, uh, I'll just keep telling, I'll, I'll keep telling the history. So essentially, the Hollywood system, its core industrial kind of Fordist in-house business model, contract labor, um, starts to 
starts to unravel by the late 60s, um, both as like, yeah, as like a mode of production and its relations of production, but also as a kind of ideological formation and as an aesthetic, a set of aesthetic practices. So <clears throat> a lot of these studios are, are, are struggling, multi, like conglomerates uh, and eventually multinational ones start gobbling up the studios. There's a big shakeup. They're like, you know what? Let's hire people to make movies not inside this old stodgy system. So they start hiring people from film school and they start hiring people from the television industry who are like, I mean, they're all mostly boys and they're, you know, they're all men who have white men who have something to say and are going to disrupt the industry. This is when the era uh, that we often call the Hollywood Renaissance. It's like, uh, Arthur Penn and Sam Peckinpah and Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola, um, Brian De Palma, people like that. And so they make, you know, what are arguably some, if still problematic, like some pretty great cinema. Um, and they're, they're doing it in more independent ways. They're, they're really, they're really breaking all the old Hollywood rules. And, you know, it's it's for all of its problems, it's a pretty good decade of Hollywood cinema. And then in the 1970s, what essentially happens is that kind of disruptive experimental sensibility gets rerouted into a new dominant, huge money-making, big risky investment industrial model and aesthetic model. And that's what I call the neoliberal blockbuster, essentially. And this is started by Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. Ste you, you can, film scholars will say that the blockbuster that we come to know in the late 1970s really um, as a business model uh, arises through films that might be counted in this like kind of Hollywood Renaissance mode. So like the, the Godfather would count, um, the exorcist would count, but what I'm interested in more specifically is the Lucas Spielberg blockbuster, because it has a very distinct set of aesthetic, aesthetic commitments that are also, that also lock in this, this new, industrial model and the new industrial model is you know effects driven act effects driven large budget productions that that are intensely risky that increasingly rely on wall street investment and um and then aesthetically they are action adventure uh films that in my analysis are absolutely obsessed with immediate material immersive physics. Okay. So that's a really long-winded answer to your question. What is the neoliberal blockbuster? So yeah. the we, you know, we live, we live with it today. You know, that's what the MCU, the legacy of the MCU is born with Jaws, Close Encounters of the Jaws is 75, Close Encounters of the Third Kind is 77, and that's and Star Wars is 77 as well, a new hope. It is interesting. I've uh, I used to do an aesthetics podcast uh, around literature and film, and um, I, I you can literally look at the change in the highest grossing movies in America 
uh, in substance in the mid to late seventies. Like it just fundamentally shifts. Like, yeah. Um, so what does that have to do with economics, Scott? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so in my book, I'm interested in, well, what kinds of cultural aesthetic forms arise as this kind of commitment to, to individuality as primary, which often means matter as primary, materialized individuality, although, although it doesn't always, but it often does. And I kind of, I've gone back to the kind of classic story of the Florentine Renaissance and Renaissance perspective, um, which, you know, prominent Marxists, especially in film studies, prominent Marxists have read as, you know, uh, you know, premonitions of the, the rise of the bourgeoisie and the bourgeois subject, because the, the Renaissance point of view with its single or multiple vanishing points situates an individual spectator before an image that is supposed to be a kind of window onto the world and uses abstract, supposedly abstract geometry to deliver, to deliver this world as property to the viewing subject. So that's like the classic Marxist critical theory aesthetic analysis of what, what uh, Renaissance perspectival painting does. My reading is that it's actually not abstract at all, that it's actually, it's, it, if you compare it to Byzantine forms and Gothic forms that that, it, that that form was pushing back against literally inside the same churches and, and the, the same kinds of buildings. What I would say is that it, it, what Renaissance perspective does is it says no more with the abstraction. What we want is embodied concrete materiality in which, and this is some of the writings of the period from Alberti, he'll, he'll literally write that, that, that these good paintings permit motion to only occur through material displacement. So it's only individuals, objects, persons, actions that can only be materially displaced um, through space, evacuating space over here and moving to, into space over here, even though they were still. It, it becomes a more dynamic practice once you get into Baroque painting and we could tell, tell that whole story. But my argument is that, that this is a, uh, a kind of immersive materialist reification that wants to wish away the abstractness of inscription. Mm. Does that make any sense? Yeah, actually it does. And, and the, the way it makes sense to me is the fact that Renaissance art is, is supposed to be perspective neutral in a lot of ways. I mean, no, it, it isn't actually, I mean, but it's supposed to, you know, it does universal. Yeah. A universal yeah. individual perspective, right? Universal individual perspective. And you're supposed to be seeing something as if it was like, it was there, even though a lot of that's tricks, that's not, that's another yeah, that's another point. As opposed to say Byzantine art, which is very specifically about an abstracted human form of which your relationship to it has a forced perspective, um, which why the weird heads and all you know all this stuff uh, because 
it isn't about the individual. There is a relationship, or a hierarchical relationship, admittedly, but there is a relationship expressed in the very perspective of the painting. Um, yeah, and there's, it's meant or to be... Or whatever. Yeah, and it's meant to be, you know, a sign of ritual gathering that happens to take the form of, let's say, you know, a giant Mary with a bunch of tiny-ass saints, like, in her right. cloak, right? Exactly. <laughs> like, it, it's, it's like, it's much more like an abstract aesthetic sign system that convenes social belonging than it is a, no, a material individual first, and then you can have relations after that. So, like, I, I don't, I mean, I agree that, you know, the, there is, there is a homogenizing mathematics that, that, is the is the you know the grid the architecture the the pictorial architecture that that is univocal that that houses you know that makes possible renaissance perspective but i i think what i'm saying that's new and different is that is that it's actually a kind of immersive immediate material fetishism that's anxious about abstraction and you 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 can read the paintings in ways that that draw out the symptoms of that anxiety crisis right and then you can read the the italian humanists who were poets and and rhetoricians at the time who you know the, the, these arts are feeding off of one another who themselves are you know making fun of both the the dominicans and the franciscans and they're like all this abstract bullshit with all the all your stupid terms right i mean this is they were the first ones to make scholasticism into a you know an epithet right like a like a dirty word right um so you know like people like erasmus or lorenzo valla are are can't handle abstraction because reality is immediate and embodied and active so uh, in my book, I'm kind of picking up on that. And then, yeah, I'm a scholar of the blockbuster. So I do this kind of, it's almost like a bookend story where something is happening in a kind of late medieval, early modernity in theology, in metaphysics, in visual aesthetics that I find problematic and symptomatic and as a kind of repression of abstract mediation, which again, I want to affirm as a problem of care, a problem of interdependence that I see coming back with a vengeance in the neoliberal period, right? I mean, this is, this is, you know, this is the Chicago boys go to Chile, the New York fucking fake debt crisis in 75. And then, you know, Carter comes to power and starts uh, deregulating and we get the Atari Democrats by the late 70s. So, right, this is, this is the moment when, what we know as neoliberalism is happening. And so I think originally when I first started thinking about this in like 2011 or so, I was like, God, like <laughs> these are of a piece. Like these, you know, Star Wars and Close Encounters come into being as a mode in this neoliberal moment and they take off. Like this mode sticks, right? So, and so does neoliberalism. <laughs> So as a political economy. So for me, there was this kind of enigma, like what's the relationship? And like moving beyond just like, oh, you know, high risk investment, but, you know, nervous investors who want to who wanna only invest in pre-sold content, 
right? So that we end up with, you know, franchises and endless repetition of the, you know, and iterations of the same thing, um, horizontal integration, merchandising. I mean, all that is easily readable as neoliberal. What I was interested in was the way that this cinema breaks with the history of Hollywood cinema intensely to create a deeply immersive, like rattle your butt <laughs> immersive audiovisual experience, which makes, or at least tries to make direct material leveraging or impacts or slipping and sliding the very causal conditions of all of reality, essentially. And my point is not that, so then every, you know, as a global Hollywood commodity, everyone just, you know, believes this like at a conscious level as an ideology. For me, it's a, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a phenomenology. It's a logic of sense that even if we know that, you know, Iron Man, it doesn't exist, or, you know, this is a galaxy far, you know, long time ago, far, far away. We have a dominant cinema with the oncoming of the neoliberal political economic order, which is obsessed with, with these kind of immediate forces and flows. And, you know, I, I see resonances with, you know, both pro and anti talk of like globalization and multi capital, multinational capital flows. And, um, both on the, both on the affirmative side, like, you know, Thomas Friedman, the world is flat. Um, but also on, you know, I mean, to me, like some of the worst examples are like David Harvey, who wants to think about money qua capital as, as a water cycle. So it's all of this finite material pushing and pulling and forcing and, and grinding that I find to be, yeah, repressing of, of abstract mediation, the abstract mediation of cinema, the abstract mediation of media. And then by extension, I think that it unfortunately informs how we think about mediation in general, which would include money. And the, like thinking of mediation as a hydraulics or even feeling it, not just thinking it, but feeling it such that, you know, when Obama says we're out of money, it's like, well, you're an asshole, but you're probably right. <laughs> um, I want to give you credit for not blaming Reagan for neoliberalism. Um, <laughs> I mean, he was a, he's a bastard. No, yeah. No, no, no it's no. not like Undoubtedly. he kicked it off. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's just a common left myth. Yeah. Uh, which is a funny thing to pick out of that long tirade. Yeah. Um, uh, the, I do want to ask you, I am actually very interested because I've thought a lot about this and my original logic for the neoliberal blockbusters popularity, and I wouldn't have called it the neoliberal blockbuster. I would probably call it the modern stupid movie. Um, but <laughs> just to be, cause uh, I'm not a snob about many things, but on film I am. Um, and I was thinking about that as I was listening to you today and also, um, some of your available lectures over at Money on the Left, um, about how my story of that and your story of that are actually somewhat similar. Ooh, and I'll tell, tell you my story, but 
you're gonna find me to be a dirty reductionist positivist at Marxist. That's fine. Um, Go ahead. Let's um, do it. As long as we're reflexive about it, it's funny. Um, so uh I was thinking about the way that to recoup the money that the that particularly after the studio system started to die and you had this uh, the, and which was a very Fordist style, actually production line, which yeah. I think people often miss. Yeah. Um, uh, it produced very certain kind of product. It was fairly consistent, but felt kind of tired. They went through this auteur period. Uh, the auteur period was not so much. I mean, it was very individual, um, but it was a time of like radical experimentation yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. And popular and popular art. Uh, but they lost a shit ton of money on a lot of it. Like, I mean, yeah, every, yeah, yeah. everybody, everybody always blames Heaven's Gate, the Michael Cermino movie that basically like lost so much money that what United Artists went out of business. Yeah. Um, but and they were throwing everything. I mean, everything at it. Like, you know, you were this. This is the era of black exploitation, kung fu, right? Uh, those disaster cycle movies with all the, like the old old stars and the young ones and trying to like get everybody out to the movie theater like you must think somebody's sexy here yeah it, it, it is interesting I, uh it's a side note i was watching valley of the dolls uh from the late 60s and noticing some of that stuff and noticing it's it, even though it's a camp movie um and it was a very it was like a proto blockbuster kind of um that was critically hated um it also is in about five different genres and three different cinema modes um and so I was thinking about that, and my narrative for that is is in some ways similar to yours in that um, usually what you, the relationships between people in a deep in a deep way require context, and the broader you need to sell a movie, the thinner the context needs to be. Now this is an obvious argument. Like this is what we always talk about. Like the stakes. Of modern movies now, like in particularly by the aught teens, feel like everything and nothing. Like there's almost no particularity uh, to the stakes because there's no social context for the particularity. Ironically, the the uh, the complete individual is is weirdly contextless, right? It's the 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 hyper individuated. Uh, movie hero can't have a context because also everybody has to see themselves in them and not any specific kind of relationship. And that broadens your market more and more. It also makes your movie more and more boring in my personal opinion. And then the only thing you can really fill in with that is this very physical, uh, spectacular mm. stuff. Um, what I'm thinking about here is my narrative, again, being the being the dirty positivist version of this um, would still kind of rhymes with yours in that you're talking about how all the mediation, the abstraction is removed. And I would say, yeah, or because it's hidden. Have... It's hidden. You, I mean, they use abstraction because media is abstract, but they, they try to hide it. Right. Yeah. Um, and because that mediation if it's explicit it would require context of real people having a real community uh in an abstract oh, that's way that's so 
So, I mean, it, it was interesting because I listened to some of your lectures and I was like, yeah, I actually see what you're talking about from a completely yeah. different perspective. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And I think about this because this is one of the few times where I'm going to go, this could easily be an and in both uh, scenario where there is a way in which kind of, I always hate when I have to resort to unconscious or libidinal forces because that's a cheat, but kind of unconscious <laughs> or libidinal forces um, are manifesting in the way people are responding to cinema uh, that reflects certain kinds of social relations and lack of thereof. Now, the Marxist inclination, which I have, is to always see hidden conflict everywhere. That's what we do. We, uh, we everything's a secret fight, um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, welcome to the secret fight. That's so uh, funny. <laughs> yeah. um, and and uh, I think post structuralism inherits that and like doubles down on it even more than we do because it becomes no everything's a secret fight about biopower. So everything's a secret fight at the primal level at all times. And right, that's the know, Foucault version. That's the Foucault oh, version yeah. where the Marxists are like, that's a little much, man. <laughs> um, but, uh, so, but you see something else there. Um, yeah, I see something else. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not allergic to reading various kinds of conflicts, class or otherwise, in you know, popular forms. I'm not saying it's not there. Yeah, I see something else there. So not only do I think that um, uh, these forms repress abstraction and that's bad for us, mm -hmm. um, but I also see it sort of answering the, the particular regime of neoliberal carelessness or fecklessness um, which, you know, I think probably most of the people listening to me right now, they would say, you know, uh, they would want to call it class power. They would want to call, they would want to call it a, a kind of willful evil. Right. Um, and I guess I would say, sure. And there's also, there's also a fecklessness. There's also a, an, a, a collective kind of abandonment, not that there was non-abandonment before neoliberalism, it just took a different shape. Um, and I and what I would say is the way I read the, the constant kind of massage, the, the rumbling massage of the immersive blockbuster is a way of kind of making us, making the body, making our sensorium feel like no matter how shitty things get, you can always count on this kind of material basis, this material ground, or this material force like gravity, or like inertia, or um, you know, or or I mean, it it, it takes any number of of forms. Uh, so it's like the way I read the kind of paradox of what I call the hyper Newtonian blockbuster, like hyperbolic Newtonianism. Um, so not a strict Newtonianism, like they, they play with it all the time. Like, you know, they break the rules of physics and yet they're obsessed with physics, mm -hmm. even as they're being a little more exaggerated uh, about them. That they're, they're actually functioning as this kind of, this, this deep material cradle of, of the senses that says they're there, 
It's going to be okay. You know, especially when shit is falling apart, you'll know that gravity is always here. You can always count on it. You know, Iron Man can lose power at the, you know, <laughs> when he's trying, when he's flying higher than he should, and he might die <laughs> when he's, he's plummeting to the earth. But the fact that we can count on gravity to pull him down, that we, that we feel the base effects on our body as that's happening, that we see um, his suit starting to burn up in the atmosphere, all, and we feel it, um, that all of those kind of immediate physical reminders of this immersive there-ness is a kind of symptomatic, I don't like the word co compensation, really, because I actually think it's like, it. It's deeply meaningful to people. It's like, to me, it's deeply part of the pleasures of the blockbuster. But that doesn't mean it's not symptomatic. And and so I, what I would say is like, it's assuaging, it's a form of like toxic caretaking that's like, here, abstraction isn't really an issue. And, and you know, <laughs> the forces of neoliberalism are just going to do what they're going to do, but at least you can count on them and count on material reality to behave in the way that you're used to. Mm. And so you would read this focus on the material um, a little differently than I did where I'm saying like, okay, well, we focus on material because we can't have the contextual, the contextual. Well, I would know. put, I would put contextual on the side of abstraction, right? Okay. So to, me, so to me, abstraction is about relationality, mediation, coordination, like writ large at a distance in its heterogeneity. And you need context for that. You need, you, you need language, you need all kinds of, you know, abstract forms to do so. So I, I think we do kind of converge there. Okay. So you would say um, basically that then, yeah, because me, uh, the reason why we're having a, a trip up and I, I see it, and this goes back to what you did all the way back an hour ago is my natural inclination with, when someone says abstraction is to either go Hegel or go analytic philosophy and say, Oh, you either mean the formal or you mean, um, that which has become a fetish, uh, right. That Neither. which has become, yeah, I mean, you don't mean that. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. So, so to, to and I'm not an idealist either. Right. No, like, no, I'm not I haven't idealist. accused you of that. No, no, I, I know. I'm just, I actually find the accusation of idealism harder and harder to place on people because I realized that like, even amongst Marxists, it's one of those phrases that you could just be like, and you're an idealist and you're like, well, what do you mean by that exactly? Like, do you mean that I'm from the German Hegelian, you know, can't fix the school of thought? Do you mean that I place ideas first? Do you mean, um, do you mean that uh, I don't have a materialist or scientific understanding, et cetera, et cetera, and then define all those terms and nobody ever does. So it's kind of a, it's uh it's not a, it's not a, it's not an accusation I throw around that much anymore. Um, well, we get it. The, like, yeah. the, the money on the left crew will get it for sure. Well, of course you will. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, um, what I find interesting in this construction, I, I, I do find interesting how much parallel you see 
um, between these economic forms and these uh, aesthetic forms. But unlike, say, a one-to-one -one relationship or even some of the more complicated Marxist aesthetics that sees this, you seem to be implying that the reason why these are successful is that they're comforting in a way in these kinds of conditions, right? They and yeah. thus re also reinforce the conditions in the way they comfort you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. It, yeah. And so it is a kind of like, it is a kind of unreal. I mean, I, I'm trying not to go Umberto Eco on you and start talking about hyper reality, but uh, uh, there there is a way though in in which the focus on like Baudrillard or even Echo, and now I'm going to go lapse full back into my own lapsarian fall from grad school brain, um, uh, is actually kind of the opposite of what you're saying. Cause they're always focusing on the unreality of these like early neoliberal cultural forms. Uh, right. And what you're talking about is like, no, I mean, they're really obsessed with like actual physics and stuff. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's, that was a huge, when I said earlier that I found <clears throat> that a non-lapsarian view of abstraction, which I read in, you know, MMT's relatively, you know, like rationalist, like counter-rational, you know, economics, when I said it, it really unsettled a lot of the, the questions and the some like the way of posing certain questions and the assumptions behind it. This was this was part of it. I mean, so one one uh, assumption in the original critical theory project uh, is that you know Western modernity was getting more and more abstract, and that was bad. And maybe it was dialectically interesting, and and we can talk about you know, the, the negative dialectics or the, or the explosive Benjaminian dialectics that make abstraction a kind of what, what, uh, you know, sometimes I, I think this is Krakauer called the go for broke gamble of history, mm -hmm. but nevertheless, it's this kind of accelerationist story of more and more abstraction. And then the, the postmodern moment with people like Jameson, um, come along and they say, it's gotten even more abstract. And the kind of dialectical tensions uh, and the class struggle and all the, all the sort of antinomies of modernity that kind of dialectically held this whole thing in check and, and suggested a kind of dialectical counter pressure have been thoroughly subsumed by capital. Mm -hmm. And aesthetics, which used to have a kind of dialectical counter resistance blah 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 it has been a, a subsumed by capital so you can't trust that anymore and now capital is invested in simulating its own simulations to you know this endless regress and there's no critical purchase and then you know famously fred jameson gives us this kind of what I how I read this is almost like a blockbuster moment in his famous postmodernism book. He's like walking around the Bonaventure Hotel, it, it, this this postmodern architecture in downtown LA, and he can't get his bearings. It's like this immediate physical. I'm dizzy in this space. You can like feel the camera like over the shoulder and whipping around him in like a Michael Bay shot, right? And like everything's dizzy. He's physically immersed, but it's all kind of overwhelming and seems hyper real. Um, 
and yeah, to me, I say, no, 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 no. If you start with a different set of premises, you, you can see that actually the blockbusters and those postmodern Marxists are both kind of obsessed with physics in their own way and hydraulic models of metaphysics and, and money and value and labor and labor time. And they're really not, as I see it, not taking abstraction seriously and they're terrified of abstraction. And so when you start from those premises, you see that, um, yeah, you just end up with different conclusions. So I'm not, I am not, I mean, you know, I started learn, studying this stuff in the 90s and this was like, like, you know, prime time for, for that kind of uh, Baudrillardian kind of hysteria about postmodern simulacra, nothing's real anymore. Um, and I mean, it's, it's sexy, it's cool, it's doomerist, but it, it's, I mean, ultimately I think it's a fucking dead end and it's antisocial and it's certainly not going to like, it's no basis for abolition or a Green New Deal. All right. Uh, so, so one of the things that I guess you are saying is the aesthetics reflect a a lack of mediation, um, which itself is a way of hiding mediation, um, hiding uh, what abstraction for you abstraction re refers to kind of all kinds of mediating processes in language and culture, et cetera, um, uh, that uh, particularly, you know, Marx, and, and now every argument I've ever had about an MMT or about which model of physics or biology we should use when we're talking about economics uh, <laughs> is flashing before my eyes. Um, uh, 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 our and we should say in like a less and in a less esoteric register um you know philip morowski's book more heat than light is devastating when it comes to the 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 history of of you know from the physiocrats to the classical e economics to marx as a classical economist or transitional figure to the neoclassicals and the marginalist revolution all the way to you know whenever he wrote that book his argument is that the the phys Economists are always using outdated physics models, right? They they take them from like the generation before, like they the ones that have mm -hmm. like become intelligible. Um, so they're never on the cusp, and they're always using the outdated physics model. Um, yeah. So well, I'm not actually, the only one. yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because um, I. I in Marxist circles, in the esoteric Varn Patreon, which I normally don't plug on the actual uh, open show because I'm not a total whore, um, uh, uh, we actually had a long discussion about Philip Murawski. The first oh. person I ever interviewed on my own show when I uh, did my first uh, breakaway from Doug Lane in 2014 was Philip Murawski. Oh. Um, and the reason why is... I read David Harvey's book on neoliberalism and I read Philip Morales's book of neoliberalism, my three David Harvey's book out. Um, <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, I, I don't, I, I, I'm not a David Hardy hater, actually. I just really don't like that book because between weird insistences of geography and places that don't seem like they belong and 
a nearly conspiratorial view of neoliberalism as solely political project and not this whole other broader thing. Um, which is weird because he talks about the broader thing in other works, but yeah, yeah, but Go not ahead. in yeah. that book. Like right. yeah, that's, yeah. Why I, that's why I said yeah. I don't hate all David Harvey books, but his neoliberalism book, I could tell he wrote it for a popular audience and was yeah. kind of being condescending. But <laughs> um, I mean, uh, but when I read Philip Morales's book, and then I read no, uh, More Heat Than Light, and I have to admit, it did throw all the science and. Uh, analogies made by economists no matter what the economists even the economists on my side i started looking at them a little bit more scant eye than i did before because yeah the economy is not a, a metabolic system no it's you know um it oh my god equilibrium have you ever really thought about what equilibrium would take in 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 uh in economics it requires yeah i mean i i say this all the time but it's literally true if you took equilibrium moderately seriously to reach equilibrium you must abolish time <laughs> well yeah because there's no time in right right the there's not like yeah. there's no that you would have instant total uh equal knowledge and i'm like well you you can't even build towards that nor uh i was thinking about um the uh i mean kind of uh he's a dirty keynesian but uh and not not the good heterodox time but joseph mm. heath's argument about uh, even approaching Neil, like assuming that approaching equilibrium was possible, uh, is still there's no reason to assume it would be optimal. Um, mm. I don't know but I, I, I do find that uh, it is important in some degree to look at aesthetics in their relationship to this because there is a sense in which I do think um, that the state of the world, i.e. the general kind of psychology that the economic and social environment is producing lends only certain kinds of aesthetic things to be popular. And you have a very hard time explaining like why the movies of the 50s to the movies of the 70s to the movies of the 80s seem radically different in a bunch of key ways. And then once 80s hit, it feels like it's just reign supreme until COVID happened and we don't know what's going to happen after that. So, um, yeah, which... I mean, that was a deep, that was like a deep mystery for me when I, I started paying attention to, Oh wow. Like all these films are, you know, yeah, they, they are all about visual effects, but they're just so obsessed with physics. And like, you know, I'm a student of the history of cinema, Hollywood and global. And it's like, this doesn't happen anywhere else in the history of cinema. I mean, to be fair, there's a, there's, there's a tradition of spectacular melodrama that emerges in the 19th century stage. And, and it, it's very much a part of early serialized spectacles, um, like a series like The Perils of Pauline and uh, The Hazards of Helen um, in like the early teens and 20s. And, and kind of like action spectacular with whiz bang special effects like there's a deep tradition of that but those don't have and even like they they're hanging off cliff edges and you know, rescues and explosions but they're not they're not organized in this in this obsessively physically immersive way and that was like a, a something a light went off for me when i kind of realized that that there was there was something so different about this neoliberal blockbuster cinema and trying to kind of figure figure that out. Um, 
so for those of you who are interested in the Philip Murawski discussion, um, uh, the original, now I'm just going to respond to a thing that was asked because it's relevant to what we're talking about. Um, the original uh, interview with Philip Murawski is available for free on Mixcloud. Uh, it's from like 2012 or 2013. Um, and my recording equipment was was an iPod in Mexico. So it's it you you can find it. Um, uh, I I haven't put it on any feed. Um, Scott, I wanted to ask you a little bit about some other scholars. Uh, I like to to spread the the, the good news around. Um, hmm. uh, one of the things that, that the mission of the show um, is to expose people to um, different elements of. Um, culture, education, political economy, and history uh, from a left perspective. But as I've said, who the hell knows what left perspective even means anymore? So um, I, I actually really, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm allergic to debate broism fundamentally. Um, if, you know, I'm always like, if I need to debate someone, we should just fight them, like in the parking lot. Like, <laughs> Uh, secret fight. <laughs> yeah, secret secret every, fight club. Everything, everything is secret fight, and and maybe with the debate, bros, we should just have an. It should be on secret fight, but um, but I I do believe in in dialogue because I've learned the the most important things that I've learned, um, even from my uh, particular views about Marxism, have come from realizing the limitations and dialoguing with people in other fields, and Same. so when they come on. I do like them to share what they think is good in fields that they don't think that my audience would be exposed to. So I'm going to like, this will be our closing question. We're going to end on some love here uh, instead of, you know, I'm normally known as the doomer peeled guy. So we're going to be less doomery today and talk about things that you think are good and should be shared to the world. <laughs> oh my goodness. I wish you would have prepared me for this question. I, I'm <laughs> answering what should people read that that is good in other fields or, or just in your field just that they might not see from me oh man oh this is you really I, this was not the one i thought was going to be the uh, the, the, the the gotcha question i thought the one on Heidegger yeah right and, gotcha uh, <laughs> you prepared for that one uh, yeah this is totally the gotcha question um Oh, it's like too, I, it's like too much. I, I don't, I don't even know. I don't even know where to begin. Um, okay. Oh gosh. <laughs> so uh, I'm at, let's ask what, what work on aesthetics have you, have you found joy in, in the last say two months? Work in aesthetics that I found joy in the last two months. Um, okay. Um, yeah, so this is like, this feels really idiosyncratic, but I'll, I'll try. Um, so I just reread, I don't know if your audience is going to be interested in it, but I just reread this work by a media and television scholar named Lynn Spiegel. Okay. And she writes a lot about like mid-century TV and mid-century modernism. And she's got, uh, she's got a complicated way of approaching these things in ways that are like 
you know, both critical, but also interestingly affirmative. I just reread this article uh, about <clears throat> the, uh, what, what was called the storage wall uh, in mid-century modern design. And she likes, she starts this essay. I don't, it's so weird that I'm recapitulating this. She starts this essay by starting with um, this kind of move in computing and, and uh, interaction design that, that really takes over in the 90s and the 2000s um, that's called like ubiquitous computing. And their whole thing was about moving away from the uh, personal computer. So the first you had the mainframe, then you had the personal computer. And they were like, no, we need to physically embed computers into everyday life. And this is like the origins of like the smart fridge and the smart everything, right? And everything is, so you're no, your computing is no longer, you're sitting in front of an interface. It's, it's com computation and devices are built into your environment, right? And I would say that we're like both living that world and also not because the, you know, we still have massive server farms. We still have, you know, personal computers. Um, and so what Lynn Spiegel does is she says, um, this ubiquitous computing rhetoric has a backstory. And it's like, like a clever historical backstory. And she goes to like the, these architects or this one particular architect whose name escapes me at the moment, um, who's really influential, who is very much involved in like designing and theorizing the modern home. And the modern home was going to, um, the problem with the modern like suburban, you know, read white middle-class home was that there was like too much clutter to, to you know, material commodities, post-war prosperity, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the post, the, sorry, the, the mid-century modern aesthetic was about sleekness and cleanliness. Um, and about like finding ways of storing and organizing and pushing out, like getting out of the way and out of view clutter in a way that push back against a certain, a certain kind of maternal home environment. And um, especially like Victorian ornateness and Victorian ornament. You following? Yeah, I'm so, totally following you. Okay, so the storage wall was, I mean, you know, we still have them. Like it, like it's, it's like a wall unit that has cubbies in it. And then very often like, you know, like col colored or wood sliding doors that would come in, um, you know, like, you know, c cover stuff. And she's like interested in this and says, this is sort of like the origins of ubiquitous computing. And in fact, they, these storage walls would, would not only be a storage retrieval system, kind of like contemporary computers, but also um, a way of um, housing media. Like you put your hi-fi in the storage wall and your whatever, your radio and whatever, whatever else you had. And um, she's reading this as a critical feminist and saying like, on the one hand, this is like interesting. On the other hand, this is like a way of like, rep like repressing and putting maternal, the maternal labor of the housewife out of sight, right? So she's, and and this is in the wake of the evacuation of colored help from the white middle class family. Mm. So so 
the this creates sort of more labor for mom and and then evacuates and hides that labor under you know uh this clean kind of masculine aesthetic and she's like wrestling with these tensions and i i think it's a, like a really interesting argument but one of the reasons i think it's so interesting is because i'm a scholar of star wars and i'm really fascinated by the 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 aesthetics of the empire and the weird like erotic ambivalence that we have towards these aesthetics which more recently i've been thinking about in relationship to johnny ive he's the apple designer circa like 2000 to the present where if you like look at apple products they all look like they belong on like an imperial you know, like, like on the Death Star or something? Like literally the computer that I'm on right now, you know, looks like it should be on the Death Star. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm like, I'm fascinated about like, I'm not going to be able to flesh this out at all, but I'm like fascinated about like, you know, it's this weird mix of like mid-century military industrial complex meets Nazi fascist aesthetics meets sleek mid-century modern aesthetics. And now that I have this kind of like, like maternal home story, it's helping me to think about how, like what other unconscious desires are being expressed that basically like when you're inside an imperial space in Star Wars, they're just filled with these like cool looking media walls, right? Little like sleek, sleek walls with media baked into them and little lights and switches yeah. and stuff like that. So it's all industrial on the outside, but it looks like an iPod on the inside. Exactly. And then there's all these weird interrelationships where like Johnny Ive becomes, has become a, a consultant on Hollywood films. And he consulted, like he, he designed Eve in Wally to look like an iPod for Pixar Mm -hmm. And Pixar, of course, was owned by Steve Jobs for 10 years before that. I mean, there's just like, there's so many connections. There's so, there's so many interesting things. So that's like the most recent thing that I've, that I've read that, I don't know, I find meaningful for myself. I don't know if other people are going to find meaningful. I actually, uh, I was about to say, I thought this was actually quite interesting. And I just okay, looked cool. Lynn Spiegel up and now I'm probably going to look up that article and try to find it legally somewhere where oh I have definitely academic, do that. Yeah. academic esque access somehow um yeah. totally not through russia um so uh, <laughs> so um uh i'd like to thank you uh scott for coming on um you were my only live show this week and i know um uh that if the chat feels uh a little bit like what I've, I've taken a policy of ignoring the chat in the actual show, not just here, um, because uh, the times where I've gotten so mad at the the show itself that I've actually cut streams off have to do with chat debate. So I don't really look except to make sure that you guys aren't stabbing each other with some kind of electronic knife or something through the Internet um, or that I'm not swarmed by sex bots. So um, uh, so if you guys felt particularly ignored. Uh, I only paid attention a couple of times. Um, uh, so, uh, Scott, where can they find your work and anything else you want to plug? Obviously, we talked about your book, but what else are you doing? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Videotroph. It's via video and then T-R-O-P-H. You can find... Uh, 
the Money on the Left podcast at Monthly Review Online and uh, on our website, uh, moneyontheleft.org. We have a Money on the Left editorial collective that that houses several podcasts, uh, including one called Superstructure, another one called Medium Femme, and then we do all kinds of like weird hybrids of all of these all the time. Um, yeah, I think that's that's where you can mostly find me. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. Uh, I, I listen to Money on the Left, and uh, so I think I listen to all the podcasts, but I just get the master the master feed that throws them all at me. So I'm yeah, like, yeah. I'm often like, "Hey, Max, were you on this show?" And then he's like, "No." Um, <laughs> um, so you know that happens a fair amount. Um, yeah. So uh, are you guys still working with a uh, monthly review um, at all, or is that? Yeah, yeah. We're. I mean, we put our we put the main Money on the Left interview show, monthly interview show, on monthly review. We seem to have a good relationship. Um, you know, we keep our more critical uh, work vis-a-vis -vis Marxism off of monthly review, just to try to be polite. Um, um, and yeah, that wouldn't cause a fight at all. I mean, like, <laughs> <laughs> but, I actually, yeah. I actually. Uh, You'll get a kick out of this, Scott. I actually was talking about listening to you guys on a on a podcast I recorded over a year and a half ago that we're going to release probably this month um, oh, wow. on Motor Science um, about uh, about money on the left. And I was like, yeah, there's this weird MMT podcast on, on, on Monthly Review. They're not Marxist at all. I don't know how it happened. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I don't and, know how it happened either. I think it, I think Nathan Tank is one reason why it happened. But no, I mean we have a good relationship with them, and they appreciate what we do. And I think, you know, I I don't know. I I think it I think it works out. Yeah. Um. Well, we we had our theories about why it may have happened, but I'm gonna leave it alone. Um, okay. <laughs> you can listen to the show when it comes out. Yes. Um. But uh, also know that that was my opinion from a year and a half ago. I don't think I talk much shit though. Um, so uh, I think actually I believe this was leading up to the debate between Max Siho uh, uh, and I. Um, oh, uh, which I guess now is almost almost two years ago. That's wow. nuts. That's insane. Yeah. Anyway, um, have a good night and thank you, you for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. I, I had a, a really really nice time. Me too. All right. We're going to end with the chill clothes.